Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So this word in your ear, Mark, it's brought to you thanks to NordVPN and you, above all people, can tell people what VPN stands for. I feel an authority on this subject. It is virtual private network. And of that, I'm entirely confident. And what that is, is a way to keep your data safe on the internet whenever you're logging in either at home or abroad and VPN protects your identity and encrypts your data so that nobody can steal your identity. And at the same time, it enables you to access the internet via servers in more than 50, Candom 50. <laughs> There's probably more than 50 by now, actually. Cantum is so funny. Just is. Countries have seceded and, you know, sued for independence, probably. Anyway, yeah. 50, at least 50, 50 different countries. And this means you can often sidestep region restrictions and stream movies and TV programs from all around the world. Talking of programs from all around the world, I'll tell you what I've been watching in the last week. I don't know if you've seen it. Is Cleo with a K, K L E O. Have you seen it? No, 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 I haven't. And uh, this is a a sort of drama series about uh, an East German intelligence operative. Um, hit woman yeah. called Cleo, who um, in the course of her normal business finds herself um, killing somebody and then having to go to prison for it, which is not supposed to happen. And then when the wall comes down, she decides to find out how come she went to prison. It's a terribly good series. It's really well done. It's it's sporadically violent, but I can deal with it. I've talked about my low threshold for violence, you know, because it's got a kind of uh, it's got a saving wit to it, and, and the woman who plays Cleo is terribly good. But again, I come back to this point. It's a little bit like Call My Agent, you know, as we discussed years ago, which we loved. Which we oh loved. my goodness me, that was good. But the reason, one of the reasons we love it is we don't know any of the actors. No, Because absolutely. it comes from a foreign country. We don't know any of the actors. We don't have any associations, positive or negative, with no, those. No, you're not looking, looking at it and going, it's Hugh Bonneville putting on a funny accent. I can't it's be right. right. What's yeah. that? He was a yeah. yeah. 
So uh, that's one of the things that makes it even better. Anyway, it's called Clio, K-L-E-O, and it's very good. So anyway, back to NordVPN. You can take advantage of a deal where you can try NordVPN by going to nordvpn.com slash your ear or just use the code your ear to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and one additional month for free and a bonus gift. It's risk-free because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. Full details in the show notes. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. You know, we are talking about recently the ridiculous expense of uh, concert tickets, of live entertainment and so forth, and people playing potentially thousands for Rue Springsteen. Yeah, we were, yeah. Beyonce or Adele or whatever. Well, yesterday I found, I stumbled upon what I believe is the most expensive form of live entertainment anywhere. And I found it in the West End of London. And I found it while going down the escalator... And into the Piccadilly line at Piccadilly Circus. You're laughing. I think I know what you might keep going to say. Go on, go on, go on. And so there's two escalators when you go down at Piccadilly Circus to get down to the Piccadilly line level. So I went down the first one, and then you turn the corner, you go down the second one. And at the bottom of of the second one is 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 a guy in the normal kind of busker's pitch. And he's set up his electric guitar and he's got, as everybody have, has a kind of pre-recorded backing track, which is kind of excessively loud, over which he is... An array of foot pedals. Yeah. An array of foot pedals. Yeah. Exactly Hugely right. Hugely expensive gear, actually. Absolutely. Whereas and the image of the busker used to be kind of... Uh, Don Partridge. <laughs> Absolute Don Partridge with a kind of piece of string for a belt, you know. I know, yeah, yeah. Anyway, yes, he's got more. He's got more gear than uh, yeah, than probably Alex owns. But anyway, uh, there he is, the bottom of the escalator, and he is playing over over this banking track. And what I believe people people re- refer to as a, is a shredding style. He is just kind of eyes closed, and you yep. know, and notes per second at the top of the fretboard. You know, notes per Ingrid second. Malmsteen. And right, all, yeah. Yes, and all I can think is, my God, this is unlistenable, terrible noise. You know. Anyway, I go down the escalator, and then I go past him, and then I go into the tunnel down onto the onto the um, platform. So I estimate I'm in his earshot. Yes, for about I worked this out for for the at the most one minute. Okay, which is yeah. the time it takes we go down the escalator and walk down down the tunnel. And and he's got a little pi- payment post there, you know, where you can swipe your phone. And it says, the contribution, it says in a sign, it actually says this in a sign. <laughs> three pounds. Three minimum. As minimum, pounds. right? <laughs> three pounds. So, for one minute of his questionable music, he is charging three pounds. Take that, Beyonce. <laughs> yeah, I'm right, am I? Completely right. It makes it makes Springsteen look look affordable and it's cheap. A, 
it's a bar bargain, actually. Absolute <laughs> bargain. So funny. There's three pounds for one. Also minute. playing something that you don't recognise. I mean, that's d- the other thing is you're you're dealing with people that they're not playing the, the big hit. But at <laughs> least you can go away humming and with happy memories of when you first heard the world. They're probably playing an, a self composition. Which is even more of an imposition. Oh, Lord. So, anyway, sorry. I thought I'd get that on my chest. (laughs) So, (coughs) I found an old diary the other day from 1978. And I just happened to open it at February 1978, which is 45 years ago this year, is it not? And I found that on the 10th of February, I was going with a band called Earthquake to Salford University. What makes that date significant, that's Mark Allen? It's significant, isn't it? I know, because that's the day, that's the day we met. It was the and day we really, met. And I can really, really vividly remember it. I just started writing for Record Mirror and was terribly excited. Record Mirror wrote me up and said, would you like to go to Salford University? <laughs> Yippee! Yes, I would, to see you. Earthquake, absolutely. I hadn't heard of Earthquake. I had no idea who Earthquake were. Nothing about them at all. And a wonderful guy, a mutual friend of ours called Eugene Manzi, drove me up there. Hilarious man who kept stopping off at, uh, at uh, service stations. And he would order a cup of coffee and then scoop up all the receipts. <laughs> his pocket and process them later, press them into service <laughs> for his own benefit. He was fantastic. But I can, I can actually distinctly remember meeting you. I can remember, I think, what you were wearing. You were wearing a leather bomber jacket. Oh, leather, my bomber God. Jacket, a leather jacket. Oh. And I'm fairly sure you're wearing suede shoes. Oh, and you were, yeah, and you were the plugger, I think, for Earthquake, about whom I knew absolutely nothing. And I've, uh, actually, I got their, um, I found my review. Do you want to know what the last program oh, yes, was? Cool. so <laughs> awful. My review is so bad. <laughs> I can find it. <laughs> all in all, fight, hard gigging, yeah. hard gigging, yeah, hard gigging quartet. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, well worth your time and, uh, and money. Now, it's terrible. The last, the last uh, paragraph goes, Earthquake are not a band to be analysed. Obviously, that's what I thought the point of the music press was. It's only the third thing I'd ever written for the music press. Not a band to be analysed. They advance no musical frontiers, and they don't pretend to. I don't doubt that their superstar image will get some stick from the hardcore cynics, but judging by their effect on this meagre crowd, because they were playing to absolutely no yeah, Eugene Manzi and about yeah. their road crew, that's about yeah. it, three students yeah. and, and great kids. The effect on this meagre crowd, they have enough musical strength to justify it. I obviously just thought, you can't go all that way and then say something unkind. You know, you've just got to be, your whole job is to be really supportive, you know. Oh dear, they were they were they were kind of as what you might call power pop, weren't they? No, they no, they weren't you know, really. Friday on my mind, wasn't it? John Dukas was he the same? John no. Dukas, Robbie uh, Dunbar, Stan Lynch, Dunbar. That's it. Ro- um, oh god, Robbie, Philip, oh, the guitar, Gary Phillips, yeah, and and Stan, somebody I can't remember. But um, I remember you. I remember telling you. You said, "Who are you?" I said, "I'm, I'm Mark Allen. I'm from the Record Mirror." And I said that with just watching for your reaction, thinking he's going to be knocked out. There's a slight flicker there from you, thinking, why isn't it the enemy or the moment? What a record, what, the, what use is the record mirror? Because the record mirror was a kind of, it was kind of a dance magazine, wasn't it? It was kind of disco. Well, anyway, we can, we can remind ourselves of, of well, you you found know, one. Yeah. What, was, what was going on, you know, in February 1978. For a start... Um, how many television channels were there in the UK in, in February 1978, Mark? Three? Would it be three? Three. 
Yeah, free. ITV, BBC One and Two. Yeah, yeah. And pre-Channel Four. <laughs> pre-Channel Four. Yeah, incredible. It's absolutely extraordinary. I was looking at the Times, and on the day we met, February the 10th, 1978, 45 years ago, um, the UK football transfer record had been broken by Gordon McQueen going from Leeds United to Manchester United for £450,000. Which would be, in some cases, <laughs> half a week's wages now, wouldn't it? I mean, literally, that would be what you got on, on by Wednesday lunchtime. You would have made that every week, <laughs> whether you've played or not. It's absolutely astonishing. So I've also got an old issue of the Record Mirror from pretty much that time, uh, which has Reckless Eric on the cover. Uh, one of his rare covers. It's quite interesting looking at the charts. I don't know if you can see the charts there, because I this saw the local playlists. Oh, the charts! Yes, I did. It's Abba. Yeah. It's all it's, Abba. It's Abba at the top of there. Both, both the, the album and singles charts. Singles and albums charts. Yeah. It's the Stranglers and Rich Kids magazine. Is that right? But it's also I tell you what's going up the charts. What's just starting to happen, and it's going up the charts really slowly. Is Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush? Yeah. Which is the first Kate Bush single, which that particular week went from 42 to 27. I miss the days when things used to go up the charts slowly. That was, that was the great thing about the charts. Things didn't go straight in. No, and one. then they get on they, top of the pops, there'd be a massive And then from. they, they right. shoot up there. It's really interesting to see that and to, and to look at the, um, you know, the kind of the news pages and the feature pages and, and the kind of the lightness with which everything is taken. Oh, it's extraordinary. The big, it's the big stories are earth, wind and fires. How does Maurice White levitate? He levitates into it, he ascends into a pyramid on stage. Well, there was a drummer, wasn't it? I don't know if it was Warren Maurice White. I think it was the drummer. Oh, was it? it maybe the drummer? I yeah. actually saw that gig where he went, to, he went up and went round and, you know, yeah, There's yeah, also a wonderful bit of Ron Stewart must have had a record out and must be trying to sell tickets or something. It's a wonderful story, patently planted by a PR, obviously fictitious, but the news desk would have loved it. And I said, I think it was it was rod, rod in roller fire drama. Few what a scorcher. <laughs> the story was: seems the Anglo Scot was being sho- Anglo Scot was being chauffeured down the M1 in a Rolls Royce bound for Heathrow, which is how just how you want to picture Rod Stewart actually, <laughs> and thence to smog-bound Los Angeles when the engine of his car blew up and burst into flames. Did that happen, Dave? No, I shouldn't it did think not. So. I shouldn't no, think it's, so. but uh, but it's it's interesting that uh, the interview with Reckless Eric. I don't know if you read this. No, um, by Tim Lott, where he talks about uh, the headline, <laughs> headline is Nervous Wreck. And then the intro is, is it a nut? Is it a boy? Is it a wino? No, just reckless Eric. Our own nutter, Tim Lott, talks to him. That's great. And basically the poll quote is, they tried to put me in a mental home. I wouldn't go. I wanted to be alive instead. Because, because it's kind of taken completely at face value. Yeah, there's, there's no there's no talk about mental health issues or anything like that. You know what I mean? There's no attempt to 
to frame him as a kind of mental health survivor or anything. No, he's a bit of like a loon. <laughs> also, the thin line between being a bit of a loon and having a, uh, you know, i.e. I had six pints and, uh, you know, uh, wreck a bar at 11 o'clock at night and, and actually having some kind of terrible psychological disturbance. So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's so flip, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Because we, you know, pop stars were kind of expected to be just eccentric yeah and, and to be represented and daft yeah, and yeah doing idiotic yeah. things the <laughs> yeah. whole time. anyway it's extraordinary to reflect on this 45 years ago i'll tell you what i was thinking about before this you know i wasn't married i got married the next year you weren't married were no you? Well, certainly didn't have any children and um and i was thinking how many people do i know from before then do i still know Apart from family, precious few. Very few. I know a few from school. <laughs> and I think... One was over last night. But that's, I mean, very few. But then I, I th- 13. But then I think, you know, because at the time I was working for a small record company and, and you were freelance. You were probably still a washer-up. Were you in the King's Road? I was. I was washing, washing dishes in, in, uh, in, a, in a wine bar, the Boozy Rouge wine bar in King's were, Road. Were you sharing a, sharing a squat with Anton Corbin at the time? No, that was to come. No, that, that was to come. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah. Was, no, no, that, that was still, further on the ladder. That was glorious things to look forward to. That was two years down the line. That's incredible. But so much happened that then five years later, I'm there at Smash Hits with you, and I'm a dad. And that's the thing. Yeah. You think about how, you know, you entered that world, you know, you know, I, I started Smash It uh, early the following year when it had just gone from monthly to fortnightly, and you, you must start a couple of years later or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and you think how how many people you know from that that world, and you still know now, even though you might not see them or anything. Your your universe of people is is so much from that kind of post Smash Hits period, isn't it? It's it absolutely is. extraordinary. It um, it, it, Talking it, of that Smash Hits period, we should mention the typewriters. I say this because oh yes, Neil Tennant. Such a lovely story was posted I think yesterday, and I'm sure people have seen it. That uh, somebody bought a record from a it had been sold at an auction house, I think, <clears throat> and it's a copy of a 12 inch copy of West End Girls. The original Bobby charity Over. shop. Did they get it at the charity shop? Oh, maybe did I thought it was from an auction house, but I don't. Oh, was it? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think I think this guy bought a job lot of records. And then opening up this record, he found in it a, a tight, sweet letter to Janice Long from Neil Tennant. And it basically says, Janice, just wanted to say, I was listening to your radio program the other night, and you said, uh, it's the person who made West End Girls uh, in, in, in the group Pet Shop Boys, the same Neil Tennant as the one who's come on my program and do the thing about concerts, where it was, Platform 9, you know. And he writes, yes, it was. It's a sweet letter. And he says, look, thank you so much for playing my record too and uh, you know we've been making me and Chris Lowe have been making a record with Bobby O and uh, as far as I'm concerned from now on you're an honorary pet shop girl uh, exclamation mark you know uh, all the best Neil Turner. it's the sweetest letter yeah. and it made me think A you know the value of being one of the good guys like him Neil wrote to lots of people who played his records he was always so civil and so friendly and secondly it was it was obviously written in the spreadsheet's office because i recognized the typewriters typewriters just never used to type in a straight line they were always just up and down do you remember that (laughs) 
And I could just tell from the typeface. And he was obviously sitting there. It was in, I think it was April the 12th, 1984, when he was still a member of Stuff. We were all there bashing away at our, um, you know, at our, uh, our news stories about uh, about bad manners being on the road. <laughs> Toya's new single, whether, whether or not Bobby Bluebell was going out with Siobhan for Banana Rama and it had they had a snog up. And, uh, and there was Neil writing his letters to Janice Long, tapping away the door. It's so sweet. It was lovely. But, but it, was the, it was the first um, Patch Boys record, wasn't it? Because it was, first of all, and this is what lots of people forget, the first version of it came out on Epic, didn't it? Yeah. And, they, they and it was not a hit at all. And they were t- sort of dropped, weren't they? It was the Bobby O. Completely recording. Dropped, yeah. And then yeah. I think, and then what happened was that he got a call from, which I can remember this now, from somebody in Europe saying it was actually a bit of a hit in Germany. And it had been a bit of a hit somewhere like Italy. Uh, a bit of a kind of club hit. And yeah. that, on the strength of that, they got the new record deal with EMI, and they re-recorded with Stephen Haig, they re-recorded the version of, of uh, yeah. West End Girls that became the number one hit. So uh, I've forgotten that, you know, that, that his career at that stage was perilously in the balance. Oh, the, really in the balance. That was, a, that was that was not a career at all. He still had a job. It yeah, was, yeah. I'm a bloke who's made a record. Yeah. You know, nothing might and come of it. suddenly they, they had a number one record. But also, the, it's the idea that the first record was done again. And that that must be almost unique yeah. in popular music history. Yeah, it's done again, and then turns out to be an enormous hit because somebody saw the potential. Still, of it, still their signature right hit. Like still their signature hit. All yeah. the years years later, it's absolutely astonishing. And of course, that again is it, well, it's not forty five years ago, but it's what is it? It's damn near forty years ago. <laughs> since since those um, since those days. I can still remember us in the office asking him the name of his group, and he said Pet Shop Boys, and there was this awful silence. We all sort of looked at each other and thought, I don't think so. <laughs> and that's not going to fly. <laughs> I still remember him playing the demos. He played a demo of Rent, and uh, he played a demo of, um, of uh, Opportunities, I think it was. Yeah, and I can remember saying, uh, that's the same chord sequence as Hanging Around by the Stranglers in a rather kind of knowing and annoying way. And I think, what a ridiculous thing to have said. Does it matter? No. <laughs> oh, dear. oh, dear. It's all forgiven now. It is. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Well, there was this story uh, last week which I loved. It's a story everybody wants to believe. That uh, Paul McCartney's Andrew Watt, I think the producer who's making the new Stones album, had recorded some bass parts, contributions to this Stones album by Paul McCartney and had slated to, God, I hate that word, to, to record Ringo Starr drum parts. And so, of course, everybody leapt on this. I'm sure this was vigorously punted by Andrew Watt himself. It's in everybody's interest. Saying, could this be a record with the surviving Beatles and Stones together? And of course, as a sort of adolescent fantasy, isn't there? That here's a group with a singer and two guitarists who sort of looking for a, for a, a, a drummer and, a, and kind of named bass player. And here's a, a bass player and a drummer who's, who's guitarist and no longer with us. So w- wouldn't it be the most extraordinary combination to get uh, Ringo Starr and Paul McCartney play with uh, the, uh, the, the three members of the Stones? And, and, and what if they were to do a, a, a one-off, just a, a, just a throwaway knockabout video clip or whatever, you know, and, uh, I, I'm sure that A, Paul McCartney would never do anything like that, and B, Ringo Starr hasn't even contributed to this record yet. But it did make, get everyone thinking about the combination of the Beatles and Stones together. 
and also the connections they've had in the past, which were not many, because it actually was genuine rivalry, wasn't it? Beatles wrote a song for them, didn't they? Well, I, th- I think the, the thing is that the, um, the Beatles were kind of nine months ahead of the Rolling Stones in terms of... In everything they did, yeah. Yes, I mean, yeah, they'd been together longer, um, and they certainly signed. You know, had a, had the first single come out before. So by, by the time the Stones were around, uh, you know, the Beatles were kind of established, and you know, had had, had big hits, hit. and, yeah. and, uh, and were regarded as these these guys who had this kind of Midas-like touch when it came to you know get, sprinkling songs around to absolutely everybody yeah. else in London, you know. And uh, and so they went to see the Stones rehearse in uh, Richmond, and uh, said, "We got a song for you," which is "I Want to Be Your Man." And sort of finished it there and then, didn't they? I mean, it was semi-written, didn't they? Well, they kind it? of performed it for yeah. them, I think. You know, I mean, I think I can't believe that the Rose Stones were terribly thrilled about being asked to take it. But you, in the, at that point, the Beatles were such a kind of cast iron. Oh yeah. Thing that you couldn't refuse a Beatles song, you know? yeah, it would just have been inconceivable. Um, but anyway, that was uh, that was a kind of minor hit for the Rolling Stones. But you know, then everything that happened with the Beatles, it kind of happened to the Rolling Stones nine months later. Yeah, like Satanic Majesty, following you know, Sergeant yeah. Pepper, a classic example. But the classic one I was thinking about, I wrote a thing about this in the New Statesman. Is uh, is when the Beatles were in the first you know flush of Beatlemania, um, they were invited onto jukebox jury to be the whole jury, you know. So yeah. jukebox jury for that, so those of us old enough to remember the original one, used to be presented by David Jacob. Saturday tea time would have a jury of, of four people, generally including. <laughs> Generally, including a visiting American pop star like Bobby yeah. V or somebody like that, and then a member of the Beverly Sisters, um, usually you know Sam Costa, and yeah, Peg <laughs> Clark, yeah, Peg Clark, yeah, and um, and another uh, Dave D, Dozy, Beaky Mickle too. No, that's later. That's that's mostly. later. It's true. And uh, and anyway, the Beatles were allowed to be the whole panel. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? 
yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And that's where they famously dissed Elvis Presley. Do you remember this? When Elvis Presley's new single was called Kiss Me Quick and Ringo Sowers says it sounds like Blackpool on the holiday weekend. Oh, wow. And people <laughs> did not forgive him. For yes. Yeah. Anyway, the Beatles did that. And then nine months later, the Rolling Stones did it. Of course, it didn't work with the Rolling Stones because for a start, you needed five of them. So they had yeah. to redesign the set. Yeah. So there was room for a five-person jury. And also, here's the thing about the Rolling Stones as opposed to the Beatles. The Beatles were brilliant at just being themselves. Yeah, and all four of them had something interesting and original to say. The Rolling Stones were not brilliant at being themselves at all. They looked vaguely self-conscious. Incredibly self-conscious. The idea of being themselves. It's like, they, they, and here was the, the other interesting difference. The Rolling Stones always looked at doing this kind of thing as if they, oh God, it'd be so embarrassing if my mates see me doing this. Yeah, that. yeah. Because, because, you know, in the in the early sixties, it was all about teenage girls. It just yeah. was. You know, it was people who screamed at you through jelly babies and whatever. And the Beatles embraced that. The Rolling Stones found it vaguely embarrassing. You know, yeah. they wanted to play to our hot students. You know, and so that snobbery was always there. Completely. I watched the tail end of uh, Hard Day's Night last night. It was on telly just before the rugby, and you just forget how. Absolutely upbeat and enthusiastic, and and uh, you know, and, and and just exuberant and accepting of the whole thing the Beatles are. Everything they're asked to do, they do. Running yeah. across the street, pursued by screaming girls. We'll do Can it. you imagine we'll the Stones doing that? No, no, absolutely not. Just well, the classic case of this is is February nineteen sixty seven. Um, the Rolling Stones are on Sunday night at the, at the London Palladium doing. Let's spend the night together, which I think they changed the lyrics to "Let's spend some time together." Yeah, that's right. They certainly did that in the Ed Sullivan show, um, and they were the hot pop act. But they refused to get on the carousel at the end of the show. Yeah, she used to finish the show by because it was a show business thing. You all stood behind your letters on the carousel. And as you went round, you waved at the audience. <laughs> it's the corniest thing you possibly think of. Of course, everybody did it. The Beatles certainly did it. And Jerry and the Pacemakers did it. And everybody did it. And the Rolling Stones refused to get on the carousel, which is so classic Rolling Stones. We'll do the show, but we won't do the variety yeah. show bit at the end, you know, to prove how different we are, you know. So would the people who, who would have been impressed by that have even found out that that happened? No, probably no. not, actually. Probably yeah. not. And uh, and the other thing about 1967 is that, as you say, you know, the Beatles did uh, Sgt. Pepper and then Rolling Stones, you know, six, seven months later or whatever, they did their satanic majesties. Is the thing that also people forget is that, uh, well, is the Stones were there when the Beatles did All You Need Is Love in uh, Abbey Road when they did the telecast. Yeah. And they're also, Mick was certainly there when they went to Bangor to be with the Maharishi. He was, as he is in all the pictures, yeah. Yeah. So there's a wonderful picture of Paul and Mick in that, in that train carriage. Yes. You know, w- waiting to leave Paddington Station. With people looking through the window. Um, yeah. It's extraordinary. And the Beatles uh, sang on, on 
Uh, we love you. We yeah. Love you. Hang on, we love you. I think. Yeah. That yeah. was again 1967, the drug bust and everything. And of course, at the time, the the word was the Rolling Stones got busted because the police would never have done it to the Beatles, because the Beatles were had the MBE and so. Well, the Beatles so. were. The Inspector Dacker did come around and uh, make their life difficult, didn't it? When he was. But, 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 but then they began to snipe at each other, you know, that, uh, that John, when John Lennon gave, gave his <clears throat> 1971 interview to Jan Werner, he said, I quite like honky-tonk women, but I can't bear Mick and his fag dancing. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Very enlightened <laughs> on the part of John Lennon. And so over the years, there's always been this kind of, Keith Richards, I think, says in his autobiography, he says, I always think the Beatles are more of a vocal band and we're more of a musician's band. You're like, come on, thing to pull say. yourself together, cried yeah. Ella. <laughs> you know, yeah. We're virtually incapable of vocal harmonies, is the honest truth. <laughs> yeah. These guys are the absolute past masters, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, but I think there was always that, there's always a kind of mutual jealousy, you know, that I think, I think the Beatles also wish they'd been a bit hipper, you know, as they got all, as, as the Beatles, this is post the Beatles, you know, Paul and John thinking about it afterwards. I think they probably all wish they'd been a bit hipper. And uh, because Do you by think there's that, any evidence for that? Well, sure. you can you kind of, you can, you can read it through, you know, well, it's like Paul McCartney years later in the New Yorker. And this is like two years ago, whenever it was. He said, well, the Rolling Stones were more of a blues cover band. Which <laughs> I think, oh, now, come on, Paul. You know what I mean? That's deliberately not hearing what's going on yeah. there at all, you know. But I think... Although, basically- a tangent, we were talking about this the other day, and you made a really good point that both the Beatles and Stones grew up effectively listening to the same music, and yet never sounded remotely similar. Not at all. Which is interesting, isn't it? There is a, a, cha- that's a, all of that. that's and, a uh, challenge to everybody out there. Is there a single record where the Beatles sound like the Rolling Stones or the Rolling Stones sound like the Beatles? I don't think there is. I think both of them had had too strong a fingerprints yeah. to do that. You know, they, they, they couldn't sound like each other. You know, when the Beatles did Rockers, they didn't sound like... When the Beatles did Chuck Berry... Yeah. The Beatles' rollover Beethoven does not remotely sound like the Rolling Stones' Carol. And they're done in the same year. Yeah, they are. Damn nearly the same studios, with the same technology, with exactly the same influences, exactly the same kind of hinterland, and yet they sound totally different. But I think McCartney is slightly out of point, because those early ones, you know, they, they do sound like, they do sound like a blues band. They do sound like an R&B band. Well, whereas, whereas listen, he always right, wanted... Like, take an example like, like uh, All I Gotta Do. You know, that's John Lennon trying to kind of sound like Arthur Alexander, but sounding entirely like the Beatles. It's a Beatles soul song. It's not a soul. It doesn't sound like a soul cover, as it were, you know. No, but it's interesting when you, I mean, very early on, I think one of the earliest quotes from Mick Jagger in the music papers when they first formed is that I'd hate people to think that we were a rock and roll group. We're a rhythm and blues band. Yeah, yeah. That's what they wanted to be. Terrific snobbery there. Terrific snobbery. Yeah. And then and then within kind of five years or whatever it was, they had Sam Cutler going on stage every night, introducing them as ladies and gentlemen, the greatest rock, greatest rock and roll band, band in the world. <laughs> Which is, this is where the money is. Absolutely yeah. hilarious. It is. But I think also a key difference 
that I don't think enough attention is paid to is the fact that one was northern and the other was southern. And, you know, and, and so the Rolling Stones were, were kind of hipsters. You know, they were London smart asses yeah. trying to impress their mates. Cord trousers, suede shoes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thin belts. The Beatles were not like that at all. You know, the Beatles were kind of all-round entertainers. You know, you yeah, got on stage well and you played in front of whoever happened to be there. Yeah. Whereas the Rolling Stones were the beginning of that whole culture which still goes on in Britain nowadays, which became part of indie, which is you only, you only play to people who are expecting exactly what you're going to yeah, play. Yeah, Blur are a really good example of that, I think. You're listening to The Word Podcast, where the time is whenever you want it to be. So many years ago, I, yeah, I think it was probably in the early 90s, somebody sent me a record by a bloke called Joe Henry. And uh, and the PR got onto me and said, we interviewed this guy. I think he must have been coming over. He was American. Must have been coming over to do some show or something. And uh, and and the <laughs> the real reason I interviewed him was they said he's Madonna's brother-in-law because he was married to <clears throat> Melanie um, Ciccone, yeah, um, who's uh, Madonna's sister, worked in the record business. And so I listened to the record and thought, I said, oh, that's quite good. That's a record. And a very particular style to it. And I interviewed him. Nothing particularly remarkable happened with the interview. And nothing particularly remarkable happened with the record. And uh, he put in another one. And, uh, you know, nothing nothing particularly happened with his career. But then I've, I've acquired various Joe Henry records over the years. And, I, and a new one just appeared. And I looked him up on Wikipedia, and he's made 15 albums. Wow. Which is, I do think it's really interesting that you can make 15 albums that are not commercially successful by any kind of standard measure, but you can still still make these records. And I've got quite a few of these records, and I really rather like them. But then it struck me listening to the new one, they all sound the same. It's effectively like he's been making the same record for, you know, however many years. Well, I find that quite attractive, actually. I, I think you could say the same about Loudon Wainwright. You could probably say the same about Billy Bragg, almost. And Bonnie Raitt. I don't know. They're very, very similar, aren't they? Well, I, I, I think Loudon Wainwright, to be fair, has, you know, makes records that are departures. He goes off and he does... You know, some songs of some old bluegrass yeah. pioneer or whatever, and then he makes um he makes the soundtrack to um what's it called? That that Judd Apatow film Knocked Up. Yes. Which I was only listening <coughs> listening to the other day. <coughs> Excuse me. Um and that's produced by Joe Henry. Funny you should say that. And so he'll do a few different things and and Bonnie Wright, funny you should say that as well, because he's She's also been partially produced by Joe Henry. Yes, they're very kind of similar. Uh, and but Bonnie Ray always feels as if she's kind of trying for a hit somewhere. You know, there'll yeah. be a, there'll be a pop tune there. There'll be an old soul tune. There'll be something bluesy. I don't know what. Whereas Joe Henry, he he has a very very particular. 
fingerprint. And it, it's like he's not trying to, he's not trying to even be particularly successful. You know, like these, these songs just arrived to him. I was looking at, I was, I got obsessed last night and I was playing a load of his records. And I was playing one of his records called uh, Blood from Stars. And he says, uh, he talks about the songs. He says, uh, an album's worth of songs often arrive as an orderly parade. Then they close rank and begin to speak as one character. They follow an arc, rebuke a storm or two, come to grips in the end, all while maintaining a consistent point of view. That's beautifully put. Isn't that oh, it's beautiful, beautiful it's really, put. really well expressed. But it's like, he doesn't know why they're there yeah. <laughs> at all. And, you know, I've listened to quite a few of his records, probably not all of them at all, and really like them. They, they, have a, they just have a vibe to them. They have a mood to them. And, uh, but I wouldn't know what any of them are about. I couldn't sing any of them. Yes. Do you? Any of the, the normal measures, you know, of, uh, by which we judge an artist. But he just keeps plugging away. And there's something um, very comforting about things sounding the same, I think. You know, the, the press will always take two sides of that. When, you know, if, somebody, if somebody's different, uh, they're, they're, if, if they stay the same, they're considered to be unadventurous. And then if they change, they're considered to be kind of, uh, that's unwise and unacceptable. And to be to carry on making the same record, why not? If that's what people want. Well, except there's no indication that that's particularly what people want, apart from me and apart from him, you know. Yeah. He does what he wants, and he's found a way to do what he wants for, you know, for a long, long time, which is not what people think about the record business. Yeah. They always, yeah. Like, they always think, oh, it's impossible nowadays. You can't stick around doing those kind of things. Well, people have done. It's absolutely extraordinary. So, you know, and um, who's he like? You know, he's not like anybody else at all. Although I would suggest if you like Tom Waits, you might, you might like Joe Henry. That's not to suggest they're the same thing at all, you know, but uh, Tom Waits has ploughed his own furrow, hasn't he? <laughs> you know what I mean? He has. He's not doing anything in response. Joe Henry produced the, some Billy Bragg records. I think he did, didn't Joe he? Joe Henry, yes, he produced yeah. a Billy Bragg record. Very, very good ones. A very really, good. really beautiful. It's got a certain sound, a sort of precision, oaky kind of acoustic. Uh, it's funny that oaky thing is so interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think you're, I was listening to this record, I think there is nothing metal about these No, records. no, it's oh. creaking woodwork. It's creaking woodwork. <laughs> all recorded kind of in, in, in you know, in, in re, it's real sound, isn't they're it? They're very it's often... Live in studios, you know. They're very often done in a house, which is, he, he lived in this house. It was called the Garfield House in Pasadena, California. Yeah. And a very beautiful old kind of art deco house which had been formerly occupied by the widow of the American president, John Garfield. Uh, and um, so it's quite a historical place. He sold it now. So he lived in it with Melanie Chicone. They're still married and they've, they've moved out a few years ago. I think the children have probably grown up, you know, and de departed, so maybe they're downsized. And they used to record, they installed a studio in the basement, 
which is where the kitchen used to be. And that's where the records were all made. And he very often used them at the records with the window open so you could hear trucks. That's going. right. You could hear, that's right. You could hear things passing by. <laughs> very, by very, and birds had dogs barking and things. That's right. I remember that. And I've been, I've been finding out this morning, it, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary what you can find out with the simplest, with the minimum of effort, you know. It makes you realise why there is no place for the music press whatsoever. Because if you're curious about any kind of music you like, just go off and chase it, you know. Yeah. So the drummer on 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 quite a few of these, his records, his later records, is a guy called Jay, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Bella Rose or Bell Rose, yeah. who's also turned up on loads of people's records. If you've got the Alison Krauss, Robert Plant record, Raising Sandy plays on that. And he's well known for having this particularly soft kind of jazzy sound. You know, he uses a lot of brushes and there's nothing noisy about it at all. And I was just again reading in the sleeve notes of Blood yeah. from Stars where he says, talking about, it sounds like thunder, but what you're actually hearing is an antique marching drum that Jay discovered years ago in a beauty salon in the lower Manhattan being used as a coffee table. Oh, that's so, fantastic. So, oh, my, my God. God. And once you know that, you can see hear it. Saying, I'm going to buy that because that has a certain sound. And it really does have a certain sound. Talking of odd drum kits, do you know the story of Lemon Helm in the second band album? No. If you look at the pictures... Uh, particularly the pictures taken on the back of uh, on the, uh, the famous second band album, the band yeah. cover. He's playing a drum kit, which is is kind of oddly small. And the reason they were out in LA and he didn't have, have a drum kit, and so he went and bought one at a charity shop. It's effectively a kid's kit. You know, it's slightly small. It's not a, it's not a normal rock and roll rig. He carried on using it because he just liked the sound of it. Just like, well, he certainly perfectly suited the sound of the band's second album, you know. And, um, you know, once you know that, you can never hear it the same no, way again. No, that's lovely. That's absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> Yeah. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. And we are joined by a birthday guest, Adrian Ainsworth, who has a, a, a conversational log to throw on the fire. And uh, <laughs> Adrian, it's very nice to see you. Is it, I mean, is it, is it your birthday yeah. today? Uh, it was the 23rd. So when was that? Was that Thursday? And this was celebrated 10.50 on Thursday. Uh, well, unfortunately, it was celebrated by, uh, you know, going to work just as, oh, right, as, okay. as normal um but the celebrations uh are about to start because we're uh we're sort of heading off on uh i mean this is sort of, i suppose quite you know relevant to what i suggested we talk about today and that we're going off on an opera trip oh wow uh, go on where are you going yes go on uh <laughs> a heady glamour of leeds where are you what are you gonna see um, yeah, yeah, yeah. go on okay um it's it's the current run that opera north are doing and we worked out that if we if we go in that if we contain it within the week we can see three of the performances <laughs> so we're seeing tosca um it's supposed to be an amazing production um cunning little vixen and a strauss opera called ariadne of nauxos um cunning little uh, vixen i'm gonna throw in my bit of um, a tiny bit of knowledge here is that janicek it is Oh, it is. Look at yes. that! Very good. <laughs> Straight in. Yeah. 
highly, back of the highly, day. Un- highly unusual opera, but really, really good. So, yeah, yeah. We, and once we worked out that the, the dates fell nicely and that we could we could do it all in in a week, we it was hard not to, as it were, rude not to. Very good. So, do you go mm. on many opera trips? Have you done Wagner's Ring Cycle? I have. Um, I'm about. I've, I've I've done. I think. Two, uh, because the one of my kind of baptisms of fire, sort of literally, um, for the ring cycle was um, when they did it at the 2013 proms, and it was, I mean, yeah, you probably know this, like the Albert Hall, it's like the world's largest steamer, and yes. you know it was sort of you know the hot, one of a really hot summer, and we were proming up in the gallery, <laughs> so proming, That's so a good you know it's it like 60, 16 hours worth of opera all in one week and you know i probably i almost made a will by the end of it but it was absolutely fantastic you know fantastic. it was an incred- incredible experience and i've seen it um performed in concert again since and staged once wow. so, yeah i love i love love the ring the he's ring got the is, badges the ring, is, the ring is uh it's a bit special um it's uh and if you get an opportunity to see kind of all four in quite quick succession you know there's nothing quite like it um, I'll take your word yeah. for it. Yeah, <laughs> it isn't a quiet taste, but I, I acquired it quite. Quickly. It's quite interesting. My 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 son, my son married an opera lover a couple of years ago. He's and, been uh, converted, not he? Though? She, she, well, not entirely. He goes, yeah. but she, you know, she signs him up for Wagner and so forth. <laughs> you are coming, Megty. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you're gonna like it. Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna like it. But it is. Enough. It is like that. I mean, I, I kind of eased into it with recordings, but I mean, part of, I suppose, what I'm going to talk about today is that before I got anywhere near that, I was listening to operas like Nixon in China, which, you know, a lot oh, of Right, people, so you came at it via the kind yeah, of more recent quite, stuff. slightly sort of weird, a weird So, so what, was yeah. it, what was the challenge you wanted to throw out? Go on. <laughs> well, I might be misremembering, but I remember, uh, David, that you had an interest in classical music. And oh, I, yes, I also, yes. I also seem to remember that Mark was a bit wary of that. Yes. <laughs> well, no, I'm not wary at all. I, I, had a, I have, and I still have, an obsession with uh, Mendelssohn's E Minor Violin Concerto. Oh, I remember right, hearing first when I was 17, and I, I, I know every single note of it in the way that I know every single phrase of, of kind of blue by miles davis i became absolutely obsessed with it. i think it's the most perfect piece of music it's incredible oh, well oh, it's also obviously uh partly composed as a kind of uh, to exhibit the the possibilities of of violin playing of what is actually mm. physically possible you know but but mm. i need to yes i need to find some, <laughs> I need to find I another piece i can't stick i liked i liked one classical <laughs> record yeah. it's like saying i read a book <laughs> i read a book <laughs> once thanks yeah i don't need another one <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I did classical music. I think it was 1987. Yeah, um, yeah. I but I thought it was more, partly a challenge to myself. I thought, could I find three releases um, and maybe you know talk about each one for maybe thirty seconds or something like that? Go in on. Such a way, go on. In such a way, I could send either or both of you away to listen to them. Go no, on. go on. This is okay. good. But they're, but they are but they are all classical. No, that's fine. Um, yeah, that's fine. Go on. And, I'm going to uh, write. I'm going to write these down. Yeah, I am too. <laughs> the first one is um, a guitarist called Sean Sheba. All right, Sheba, uh, S H I B E, and the album is called Lost and Found. And I'm 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 holding it up just in case any sort All of right, okay. you know visual stimulus right. Right. is helpful. 
Okay. And uh, he he's um, a classical guitarist, um, but he's equally in love, if not more in love, with the electric guitar as well, which makes some of his releases quite unusual. And then one of the first, the, the, when I saw him live once, he did some modern, but sort of the kind of this was at Wigmore Hall, some quite modern and sort of, but still some conventional repertoire, if you like, acoustic guitar. Bach was involved and then he he went out for the interval and then he came back and it was as if um Slipknot had had a kind of dress down day you know sort of like <laughs> no no masks today lads and he was there in a kind of orange you know electric orange boiler suit plugged in his electric guitar and played an hour of electric guitar at the Wigmore Hall, hall a walk are you allowed to do that it's the only time I've seen walkouts at the Wigmore Hall but uh, it was quite a challenging piece. It was an, it was a piece of classical music that already existed for electric guitar, but it involved, you know, lots of um, you know kind of stuff that might even had you know, Neil Young going. Hang on, um, there's a bit much. Know, that's, that's a bit much. Um, what's brilliant about Lost and Found, and why I think you both might find it particularly interesting, is that even though the repertoire on here ranges across a thousand years, from Hildebar- Hildegard von Bingen, who's like writing in the 12th century, right through to Chick Corea, Moondog, Bill Evans, and then up to Messiaen and some classical composers that are especially for it. It's all electric guitar. So if... Of uh, course, the it, beauty of it nowadays, because thanks to streaming, is we can all straight yeah. away go and listen to it. We don't yeah. have to go. Hildegard von Bingen, yeah. much loved I by checked, Neil Tennant. I checked the everything... Board. Yeah. yeah, I checked. I checked everything I was going to talk about with on Spotify. And so Spotify, Sean, she- right? Yeah. Sean, Sean right. Sheba's lost and found. Lost Go and on, found. What's, yeah. what's Any, next? Anyone, anyone who loves drones and stuff like that, or any kind of like right. atmospheric electric guitar music, will love that. Um, next one is a Verlaine songbook hey, by Ver- Carolyn Carolyn Sampson and Joseph Middleton. Uh, Carolyn Sampson being the soprano, Joseph Middleton, the the pianist. Right, and one of the and one of the reasons why I particularly recommend this um, is because, yeah, I think some people can find even though sort of German leader, I suppose, is supposed to be a high watermark of classical song or whatever. Um, you know, some people find all of the Goethe kind of goblins and elves and stuff like that a little bit difficult. Um, the Ring Cycle, notwithstanding, um, and I, and I think you know French song. Um, the sort of equivalent is me- it's melodies spelt just like melodies, but with a bonus accent in there somewhere. Um, t- to my ears, just tends to be that little bit more um, emotional, yeah, yeah, sensual. And chanson is only ever a kind of parallel step away. You know, even though it's clearly classical song, you can hear sort yeah, of chanson yeah. and that kind of torch song being about to happen. And, you know, Carolyn Sampson has just the perfect voice for this. It's pristine, accurate, beautiful, but also it needs to be completely sensual, emotional and involving. And there are a couple of tracks on here, particularly there's a Debussy song called Green, where I think, you know, any red-blooded male is just not the same after they've listened to it as, as there's, before. Uh, there's, there's a challenge. Yes. Go and stand on a square of cold lino. So that's Caroline, <laughs> yeah. Caroline Sampson and Joseph Middleton. Joseph Middleton. Yeah, a Verlaine what? songbook. And obviously, obviously that's, not, that's not Tom Verlaine. No, <laughs> no. All, all, all of the songs are, they're various French composers take on poems written by Verlaine. 
And what's the third? And the third one, uh, last but not least, this is one of my most sort of prized possessions. It's a it's a sort of big box of John. Oh, it's about a John Adams. Wow. And um, the piece in particular, which you know is on this kind of quite quite sort of featureless CD, but it's on the CD of his violin concerto. There's also a piece called Shaker Loops. Oh, I know this. Shaker Loops. I just think is. Again, it's absolutely fantastic. extraordinary. Any, anybody fantastic. sort of listening to, I wanted to, I wanted to bring minimalism into it because one of the things I really like about minimalism, and I could have mentioned anything by, you know, I don't know, Adams, Glass, Reich, all those composers, is I think when people talk about it being kind of repetitive or reductive, that's not what I hear. I, I hear someone who's grabbed hold of a single idea and is just taking it as far as they possibly can in as kind of many directions as possible. Yes, it's funny, this is just what we were talking about with Joe Henry and what yeah. we Mark and I oh, were okay. recording something. You know, talking about artists who just take a very narrow furrow and just and stick at it. that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> I mean, especially, with some, especially with somebody like Philip Glass, you know, I mean, Philip Glass is one of those composers where I can actually hear about the first two or three notes of almost anything, and I know, and it's, him and I know it's him, and yet the range of what he's composed is, is spectacular. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's the same, I think, with John Adams. What I think is so brilliant about Shaker Loops is just the intricacy of anyone who likes rhythm, even though it's just, even though it's a string orchestra, so there's no, there's no instrument that's actually providing a percussive beat as such. But the, it's the kind of hyperactivity and the interplay of the rhythms, which I yeah. think anybody that likes sort of a... Um, Anyone who likes anything with rhythm, even if it's sort of glitch techno, I think can get something from Shaker Loops because it is so hyperactive and so, so sort of driven. So and they, in a nice way, in a nice way of coming full circle, I also found out relatively recently that on 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 the on his album Change We Must, John Anderson of all people took Shaker Loops, five minutes of it, and set lyrics to it, which is the kind of insanity that I think only John God. Anderson. <laughs> About what? About uh, castles in the sky and <laughs> pixies. <laughs> yeah. That's right. So, so that's my that's my pitch. Those that is good. it. Then no, those are, it's an excellent idea. And uh, I've written them all down, Adrian. That's I've right. written them all down. And thanks, the, thanks to the fact nowadays, as we keep saying, we all have the same record collection because thanks to streaming, we mm. can all go away and listen to them. The Word Podcast, walking the digital dog since 2007. So now in a very uh, three-way family favourite style, we go over to Sydney, Australia, uh, to celebrate the birthday of uh, Patreon supporter David Messer. David, how are you? You all right? I'm, uh, I'm very well, thank you. Uh, can you hear us birthday. over there? <laughs> I, I, I can hear you just, yes. Right. How's the, so how's the weather in Sydney? It's very hot. Um, you probably are envious, but we're complaining about the heat. Oh, well. Yeah, um, we're perishing here. I yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. Oh, although the sun's come out here, actually. I'm feeling slightly more optimistic about the day. So when, was your, birth- when was your birthday, David? Okay, so it's Sunday night here at the moment, and my birthday was on Wednesday. So... Just a few days ago, right? I'd actually, I'd, I, I was tearful. I thought you'd forgotten me, but you're ah, no, don't worry. How was it celebrated? Um, I unfortunately had to work in my day job teaching. If you remember, that's what I do. Yeah. Um, but then I had a very nice um, dinner with my partner and my brother and father and 
my son's two sons. So it was it was very nice. It was very, very good. good. Very good. good now you, you you provided a number of topics for conversation for today, but I'm going to seize one particularly. Mm-hmm. You've suggested you wanted to sing the praises of Bill Wyman. Oh, that's um, good. Somehow I knew that's the one you would be most interested in. <laughs> wow. So uh, why? Go on, give, give us your reasoning here. All right. Probably like you, I spend far too much time thinking about the Rolling Stones and I do spend a lot of time listening to them. And, with, you know, with Charlie Watts dying, which was very sad and obviously an essential member, it, it got me thinking about who was really essential in the Stones and of the numerous members, and I, I was just listening to a lot of their catalogue after Charlie died, and and started listening to Bill Wyman's bass, and it had all been always been a kind of sludgy thing in the bottom end of the mix. But I, you know, for whatever reason, I started noticing he actually was a great bass player, or fantastic a great bass, bass player, player. and then it got me thinking, rubbery well, sound. Yeah, I was listening to his bass on uh, "Let It Rock," and it's 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 fantastic. And, oh, or, the the live ver- you mean the live yeah. version of "Let It Rock"? Yes, yes which is recorded yes. at the Leeds University yes. in nineteen seventy-one yes. for, yeah. and for the Dave Lee Travers program. On well, Radio that's good. <laughs> and 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 like Charlie Watts, he knew not to push it too far, and to he always served the song in the band. But also, really, when you think about it. You know, he left at exactly the right time because, you know, probably their last reasonable album was Tattoo You. I think he did one after that and then he quit. And what have they done since then? You know the story of him quitting? Do you yeah, know? I, I was very amused. You told me about oh, right. how they, they didn't... They, they didn't, didn't believe, believe it. They was didn't believe him. They just thought, who could leave the Rolling Stones? And they said, okay, yeah. we're on. They rang him up, didn't they? And said, we're on tour or something in a month's time. He said, I've told you, I'm leaving. He said, we, we, we just, we thought we you thought were joking. You were, we thought you were joking. thought you were joking. How could anyone leave? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, and, and also you could argue that really the last really notable Stones or Stones member song was his hit single Je suis en rock. It's the only, it's the only stone so real seller success. Yeah, yeah, and good record. You know, I, I had a re-listen to that. It's, 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 it's a nice pop song. It's, it's funny. You know, it's light-hearted and it's better than almost anything they've done in the last forty years. Do, do you think also? It, also, the interesting thing is, it, 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 you know, Charlie Watts dies, and they go and get a fabulous drummer. Who's playing? Is it Steve Jordan or something like that? Guy you know, been with them before, isn't he? Yeah. yeah mm. Whatever. They get fantastic session drummers. You know, it's like Bill Wyman leaves and they get Daryl Jones, fantastic session bassist. Uh, and you're trying to replace people who weren't necessarily fantastic players, but they were perfect players for that no. group. Mm. And it, it's not the no, point. You're, to you're get very a, right. You're, you're, if someone. Technically imperfect, but incredibly charming and idiosyncratic and interesting with someone technically perfect and no charm, no interest whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's also something very, very charming about the way he played the bass guitar with the neck right up, didn't he? Oh, that, so that, that was unusual. Celebrated in a song by a band, and I'm trying to remember who it was now. Yeah, go on. We won't talk about his marriages and all that <laughs> No, don't. I, I don't have great praise for that aspect, but... but no, that, no, no, sure. Perfect. No, I think I think you're absolutely right. The 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 kind of um, 
It, the the nature the Stones rhythm section is the is the thing that gets underestimated in them. I think you know because the thing I remember about the Rolling Stones in the sixties, really going back, and in the early seventies, they were a dance group. You put on Rolling Stones mm, records yeah, and people yeah. danced. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. And, that, oh, yeah. and that was because of the rhythm section. As much as yeah. anything else, Which you know, wasn't just Keith Richards. You know. No, no, <laughs> no, absolutely, vital. It wasn't him. It wasn't entirely him. Well, listen, I think you, I think you performed a valuable service in correcting, uh, you know, people's overlooking oh. a Bill Wyman over Underrated. the years. Absolutely. Like, Thank you for agreeing with me. It makes me. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I feel this podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.